Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's nice to see you today. Um, we are, as we've said, continuing this series in Old Testament characters, and today we get to talk about David. Um, we are not going to cover every character in the Old Testament, or we'd be on this series through to about 2030, and that would be fine. Uh, but this week's David, and next week's going to be Ruth, and after that's going to be Solomon, and then Esther, and then we're into the fall. Um, and so that'll be good. Just in case you're wondering, the next couple weeks, Lisa and I will be away. We've not vanished. We're just taking a little holiday. So uh, if you don't see us, we're not on the AWOL, and that's okay. Today we're going to focus on David, like I said, but after I talk about his life, I hope to show how David shows us how to worship. That's going to be the, where we land on this today. David's going to show us what it means to worship. But to begin, I want to give you some overview, a sense of David's life and who he is and how he did stuff. His story dovetails quite intricately with Saul's. If you were here last week, we talked about Saul. Their lives overlapped significantly, and the book of 1 Samuel covers their lives in tandem. And these are some of the most exciting and well-known stories in the whole Bible. These are familiar stories to a lot of us. Saul, the first king, remember he loses his rights to kingship through his half-obedience and disobedience, and so God rejects him as king. And then David, a young boy, is anointed shortly after by Samuel to be king after Saul. So there's this anointing, and then there's a long period of life while Saul continues and David's growing up. So David's a shepherd by trade, looks after the family sheep, pretty responsible kid, beats off enemies like lions and bears, even as a kid, and apparently he's quite competent with a sling, okay? So picture, he's a bit like maybe Dennis the Menace. He's got the slingshot, he's out causing trouble, but a responsible Dennis the Menace. He's got older brothers who are fighting alongside King Saul, because that's what happened. The families all got brought along to serve along the king's army. They're fighting alongside, and they've reached a stalemate with the local Philistines. Now, it's not a pitched battle. It's not that the armies are just going at it endlessly. It's like one representative hero fights a representative hero from the other side. If any of you have read Homer's Iliad, you'll be familiar with this. The Greeks don't go to pitched battle with each other. They have like one hero at a time, and Ajax went forth with his spear, and ah, and they rattle saddle raber, rattle rattle their sabers, saddle raver. That's good. Anyway, and so they face one another like this, and there's challenges and taunts, and that seems to be more like what's going on here in the ancient Near East. They're having representatives fight battles against one another for the whole. And so Goliath, a giant, is taunting and holding the Israelites at bay. Now, last week we talked about Saul's fear and how Saul's fear motivated this kind of half-obedience. And I think here the half-obedience is at play again. He showed up for battle, but he's not fighting. He's doing it halfway. And so here he is. So David's been sent to bring a snack to his older brothers. And he asks what's going on with the fight. And he says, say what, I'll go fight this guy. And Saul's like, all right, if you want to. Here's a kid, he's going to go fight. We'll see what happens. And there's a bit about armor being too big, if you remember that part of the story. And David ends up going out only in his shepherd clothes and with a sling and with some smooth stones. Now, uh, Goliath talks really big, but apparently he has a weakness for ranged weaponry. He's not ready for this. So David shows up. Uh, he throws one stone, pops Goliath on the head, and while Goliath is stunned, he rushes forward and cuts off the guy's head. Okay? Battle's over. And Israel is saved through David's obedience. Now, when David goes up to fight Goliath, he says something that illustrates David's character and the differences between him and Saul really quite clearly. And so this is 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 45. It says, Then David said to the Philistine, 
You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. Okay? So David plus God is going to win. David's trusting in the Lord's power. And this shows us something about the kind of person David is. He's not afraid because he's got God on his side. So after the battle, David becomes one of Saul's soldiers. He ends up becoming one of Saul's musicians. He plays music for Saul and his heart playing, apparently so good, that it can calm Saul's mental anguish because Saul's troubled mentally. He fights battles for Saul. He wins a lot of fame. He begins to gather an army of followers called David's Mighty Men. I think the next time we build a church sports league, we should call ourselves the Mighty Men. That's a good name. He forms a really close friendship with Saul's son, Jonathan, and then he even marries Saul's daughter, Michael. And so there's a, he's inside, he's really inside the center of the kingdom. He's really well-connected. He's powerful. And in every respect, David is a high-level asset to the Israelite kingdom, high-level asset. But Saul is afraid of him. I think he can see that Saul's star is descending and David's star is ascending, and so he tries to kill him. He tries to set some challenges that will get him killed. Eventually, he succeeds in running David off into exile. David has to run away and hang out with Philistines for a while. While he's in exile, Saul marries off David's wife, Michael, to somebody else. So he's trying to eliminate, close the doors to David coming back into the kingdom. And then important, really important for David's character, at no point does he ever raise a hand to strike back at Saul in response. Another huge aspect of his character, he doesn't retaliate. On more than one occasion, he's got the opportunity to take vengeance. 1 Samuel 24 documents one of these stories. David and his men are hiding in a cave, and in comes Saul to relieve himself in the cave, all right? So Saul's at a moment of extreme vulnerability, and David's men near him are whispering, this is it, man. Take your chance. Kill the guy. He's been troubling you this whole time. And David's response, 1 Samuel 24, 6, is this. It's magnificent. So he said, David, to his men, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. David refuses to take this stand against him. He refuses to lift up a weapon against Saul out of his respect for the Lord and his respect for the office of Saul, despite all the opportunities he's given. It's remarkable. So eventually, end of the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, Saul gets killed, and then David solidifies his claim to the kingship. He battles some Philistines. He goes to war against a group called the Jebusites, who live in a town called Jerusalem. And then he moves the capital to Jerusalem, where he builds a palace for himself and stakes out land for a temple. And he starts to build and plan ahead for what's going to happen. And we learn that David, an obedient king, is called a man after God's own heart. And what he does in the story of Israel is that he completes the work of making Israel a nation among other nations in the ancient Near East. He carves the boundaries and he solidifies and he binds people together. He's a magnificent figure. But there comes a crisis of leadership, and the crisis is also part of David's story. 2 Samuel 11.1 is a lovely verse with an important message in it. It happened in the spring at the time when the kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. Now, if you've read through your Bible, you might have just missed this. It's kind of an interesting phrase, in the spring when the kings go off to war. It has a very kind of elegant sound to it. But the important thing is that in the spring, kings go off to war. Kings who are acting as kings go do their job. But where did David go? He stayed home. 
He didn't act like a king. And this marks a significant change because this is the beginning of the Bathsheba story. David not doing what he's supposed to be doing. David not fulfilling the duty he's supposed to fulfill. Maybe he's resting on his laurels. Maybe he thought, I've had enough of obedience. I'm going to sit back and enjoy the fruits of my obedience for a time. Who knows what goes on his head, but he makes the wrong decision. He's going to enjoy the kingdom instead of serving as the king. So while he's home, when he's not supposed to be home, he sees Bathsheba, desires her, commits adultery with her, and then she falls pregnant. She sends him a note, and then he arranges to, for the murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. And so Uriah the Hittite is one of David's mighty men. He's not even an Israelite. He's, he's a Gentile. And now David's going to arrange for the removal of this guy. And in the story of God's people throughout time, instead of blessing the nations, now David is using the nations. He's violating the call of Abraham in this moment. God's not fooled. We think we can pull one over on God all the time, but he sees. And God sends Nathan the prophet, and Nathan confronts David publicly, and it goes poorly for David, but he repents. He repents, but the trouble isn't done. And as a brief aside, I want to say this is true for us as well. We sin, we repent, God receives us, God welcomes us, he embraces us, but it doesn't mean you're through with the trouble because there are consequences to the things that we do. And we have to follow up on those consequences, sometimes quite painfully, even though God has embraced us and loves us. So David marries Bathsheba, but part of their punishment is that their first child will die. Their second child together is Solomon, who will succeed David, which probably casts a shadow over Solomon's reign and the kind of person he is. But there's the trouble really begins, because David's children, who have watched him take what he wants, begin to take what they want. David's kids have watched him do this. They've watched their dad take what he wants, and now they look at the kingdom and start to take what they want. One of David's sons commits a sexual assault against one of his half-sisters in the household. He saw what he wanted, and he took it. Another one of David's sons begins to try to take the kingdom over, and he runs a rebellion against his father. David's own inner circle begins to rebel against him, and there begins to be wars and infighting in these things. And David, who's led the way by being someone who takes advantage of the world, has no moral authority to stop it. He's crippled to respond to these things. It's deeply tragic. So what went wrong? Well, as I suggested from that passage we read, 2 Samuel 2.11, David's critical mistake is that he stopped acting like a king. Instead of living to serve his people, his life for the service of his people, he began to see his people as things that served him. This is a critically important lesson for all leaders, I think. Uh, Charles Williams was one of the poets, his deep friends, good friends of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. He liked to write about the Arthurian cycle, loved Arthur and King Arthur and these things. And he's writing a great poem about King Arthur who watches Lancelot and Guinevere enter a feast together. And in the moment, a thought enters his head. And as the thought enters his head, Arthur loses the kingdom. And the thought is this, does the king exist for the kingdom or the kingdom for the king? Do I exist for your benefit or do you exist for mine? Does my ego serve God's mission, or does God's mission serve to bolster my ego? And when we make that switch, we lose everything. And this is what happens to David. Now, for the rest of his life, David struggles to learn this lesson, but he does learn it almost at the very end of his life. One of the last things David does is he takes a census of God's people. This may not sound like a big deal. We have census. Do you have a census every 10 years in Canada? How often is the census here? Someone, someone affirm this. Okay, y'all count each other sometimes, all right? 
And it's pretty regular. You expect it. You anticipate it. And David takes a census and he gets in trouble. So it doesn't seem like a big deal. But the big deal is this. is He's counting his army. He's seeing how many people do I have? How many soldiers do I have? What can I trust in? And this is a radically different attitude than the David who said, I don't need armor. I can trust the Lord. Now he's trying to gather himself an army of people around him. And so he's looking a bit like, not like the David who was the young shepherd. And so punishment announced by the prophet Gad is three things. Gad says, all right, you sinned. You can have seven years of famine, okay? Or you can have three months where you are pursued by your enemies, or you can have three days of plague in the city. And David does a calculation of time and says, I'll take the plague. And immediately he begins to watch his people suffer, and he has a moment of intense remorse about what he's chosen. And 2 Samuel 24, 17 closes David's life profoundly. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people and said, Behold, it is I who have sinned, and it is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and my father's house. Once again, David the shepherd is laying down his life for the sheep. His heart's been set right. No, I exist for the kingdom. Let me be punished. And in a real way, he begins to prefigure Christ who will take the punishment for us, his sheep. It's a powerful moment in David's life. So David dies. He's buried in Jerusalem. Reportedly, you can go and visit his tomb even to this day. And then Solomon, his son, succeeds him as king of Israel. David has so many life lessons that we could draw from. Immense Uh, We could talk about leadership, about humility, about obedience, about failure and restoration. But the thing I want to talk about today is about David as a worshiper. David is a worshiper. Uh, The book of Psalms has 150 poems. Some of you have read them all, 150 poems in the book of Psalms. David is the attributed writer for 73 of those poems. When Israel worshipped, there's a 50% chance that they worshipped singing words that David wrote. When it says that Jesus and his apostles sang a hymn together, there's a 50% chance they were singing words that David wrote. He's the most influential hymn writer in the Bible. Outsized influence on the history of Israel and who they were supposed to be. And I think it's possible, although I don't want to die on this hill, that the tagline on David's life that he was a man after God's own heart may point in part to his life as a worshiper. His worshiping life was what pointed him to be a man after God's own heart. So for the remainder of our time, I want to draw out four characteristics of David as a worshiper that I think can help us to be better worshipers in turn, worshipers after David's own heart, as it were. I think today's thoughts are somewhat theological, but I hope to make them applicable to all of us as well. So some high-level stuff, some, a few complicated things, but I hope you'll each come away with something to grab onto. So let's talk about these characteristics. Worship characteristic number one we get from David's life is abandonment. Abandonment. His first characteristic. David, when he worships, focuses on the Lord alone and nobody else. His attention is fixed on God and not his neighbor. He's not concerned about how he appears. He's not concerned about how other people think. He's abandoned himself to the Lord. We see this lovely in a lovely way in the book of 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 6, verses 14 to 23. 2 Samuel 6, 14 to 23. Let me get to my own Bible to that spot. All right. 
They're bringing the ark into Jerusalem, and it says, verse 14, And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. Now, I don't know how this looks. It sounds like David was into interpretive dance. I will not demonstrate this for you now. <laughs> David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod, a linen sheet. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of trumpet. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. There's leaping involved. And she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Furthermore, further, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed to each, each to his house. But when David returned to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants, maids, as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. It sounds like her criticism of, of David's abandonment results in a punishment on her. At least that's how the editor of this book sees things. So David dances with all his might. He's going for it. He's not focused on what other people think or see or say about him. He's focused on Yahweh, his Lord. I'm dancing for God. It embarrasses his spouse. She's ashamed of him. But he knows that being sold out for the Lord is more important than appearing powerful all the time. That's what he knows. <clears throat> what does this mean for us? In practical terms, this means this. We always worship for an audience of one. When we worship, it's always for an audience of one. You're not worshiping for the benefit of the person next to you. And you're not worshiping for the benefit of a camera or you're not worshiping for the benefit of people outside the building. You're worshiping for the benefit purely and solely of our God. Your attention is on him and him alone. We're not in competition. We're not trying to see who can outdo one another. <clears throat> We're not taking our cues for how to do it from one another. <clears throat> Excuse me. What this means is that when we come together to worship God, you're going to summon personal devotion and you're going to express it towards God. It's deeply personal and deeply focused on him alone. Now, I'm not being prescriptive. I'm not going to tell you that each of you should be, actually, in a minute, we're all going to do an interpretive dance. to get. No, I don't mean that. That's not what I'm suggesting. It's not prescriptive in that sense. I don't think there's any one right way to worship, although there might be some wrong ways. You can worship in ways that distract other people or, or bother other people. Or I mean, it's, there's things you can do. Uh, maybe I'll say this, if you're planning to raise your hands on a Sunday morning, you should consider deodorant, okay? It's one of the ways to be courteous to your neighbor. I just mean to think about other people when you do these things. Think about space and what you're doing. But a good rule of thumb for worship is this. Do you remember when you were in school and the teacher handed out papers one at a time and you had a test and then you'd be tempted, I know Dave Greer did this, you were tempted to look at your neighbor's paper and see how are they doing on things, right? And the teacher said what? Keep your eyes on your own paper. 
And in worship, I think the same thing is true. Keep your eyes on your own paper. Keep your eyes on your own heart. How's your heart before the Lord? Don't be in the process of judging other people's hearts. That's the spirit of abandonment. That's the first way that David teaches us to worship for an audience of one. So let's get to characteristic number two. This one's representation. I need to explain some things here, but I think, I think they're very important. One of the lessons that David has to learn as the king is that he represents an entire nation all the time. So what happens to him happens to his people, and what happens to his people happens to him. And this is right at the beginning with the Goliath battle, right? He's out representing all Israel in the battle. If he wins or loses, it's Israel that wins or loses in that moment. He's got a strong sense of this representation, but it goes further than this. In many of the Psalms, there is a sense that David's prayer for personal rescue is simultaneously a prayer for national rescue. And if you've read through the Psalms, there's some weird moments that pulse back and forth between, wait, is David talking about himself or is he talking about all people? Or he talks about the rescue of all people or is it his problem he's projecting on things? And there's this back and forth that seems to be part of it. And I think this is one of the reasons why the Psalms are so enduringly readable today. If they really were just about David in his moment and just his own personal problems, we'd get bored with them. But because David has this sense of representation, because he recognizes that he's speaking with a voice for all people, because he can do that, it becomes something that we can access as well. In a moment, we're going to read through Psalm 25 together. But before I read it, I've just mentioned this. I want you to note how the personal story he talks about in the psalm gives way to a national prayer. So here's an example, a psalm of David, Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, personal, O my God, and you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none of them who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who do treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths, lead me in your truth, and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me, for your goodness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way, he leads the humble in justice, and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth. To those who keep his covenant and his testimonies, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he will make them know his covenant. All my eyes are continually toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses, look upon my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins, look upon my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with a violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. The personal and the corporate and the individual and the group and my issues and redeem all Israel, Lord. And they operate together in David. I gave you one kind of broad example, but it runs throughout the Psalms. If you read them, you'll see this coming up again and again and again. <clears throat> There's the personal and the corporate in balance, an image of one shifting into many and back into the one that prefigures the work of Christ, who is the one representing the many, represented in us who are the many, coming together to be the one in Christ. And there's a back and forth working throughout the Bible between the one and the many. 
Now, this can be somewhat difficult for us to get our heads around because we live in a highly individualistic culture, and we've learned very individualistic practices, but the ancient world looked very differently. And what it meant to be a person in the ancient world looked very differently to people, how they saw themselves as joined together in a group. And we are part of an ancient religion that has a different idea of what it means to be a person. And we've inherited some of these things, and we need to wrestle with them. There's a book by a man named H. Wheeler Robinson, a Bible scholar who writes about corporate personality in ancient Israel. And he says this, In truth, the higher purpose of any group is always expressed by a minority within it, sometimes a minority of one. There's always a spokesperson for a group. There's always someone who typifies the voice of what the group believes and thinks. And here's what we see in David in the Psalms. He's come forward to voice what all Israel believes and thinks. So, at the very same time that David is worshiping for an audience of one with perfect abandonment focused on God, he's also self-consciously worshiping as a representative for all. His eyes on God, but he knows that he's got all Israel with him when he does it. And these are tensions that he keeps together. He stands before Goliath as David, but also as Israel's representative. And he stands before God as David, but also as Israel. Both things at the same time. He prays to God for his personal crises, but also for the crises of his nation. And so what I I want to suggest to you this morning is that the same principle of representation is active in our worship as well. And a simple way to put this, perhaps, to take away is this. You never sing alone. You never, ever sing alone. At every moment of worship, you are joined together with other worshipers, not only here in this room, but in churches all across North America and around the world, and not only here in the living, but also with a community of those who are in heaven in the worship service of God right now. And think of things from God's perspective. God doesn't see the church as divided. He sees the church as one, unified, holy throughout time, representing the body of his risen son on earth. The whole worship of heaven and earth joined together, you are never singing alone. In fact, when you sing, you are entering into that community of people throughout time and space who are glorifying Jesus at this moment. And this is part of what I mean by representation. Now, and this also means that you are also representing other people. You're never bringing merely yourself to a worship service. You are also bringing cares, anxieties, fears, concerns, and even the sins of your brothers and sisters forward in representation. Lord, we need you. Whether or not I need you particularly right now, other people need you, and I'm here for them. I'm here to lift up them. And I think this is one of the reasons why our corporate gatherings, our coming together as a body, is so terribly important, because we are flexing the memory that we represent something bigger than ourselves. That's number two, representation. Let's get to characteristic number three, which I want to call professionalism. Professionalism. I'm afraid this point is also a little complex, but also pretty important. What I mean by professionalism is something like this. Professionalism doesn't mean expertise. Like to be a worshiper, you have to be an expert at worship. It doesn't mean a level of excellence or worthiness. Like you've got to be holy enough to show up for a worship service or it doesn't quite count, right? Uh, you sinned a few too many times this week. I don't want your singing in church, right? That's not what we mean. It means, in a sense, faithfully performing a job even when you don't feel like it. It means doing the work even when it doesn't feel right. However many of you remember Michael Jordan in the Game 5 of the 1997 NBA Finals? He was dog sick. 
In fact, he'd had food poisoning the night before for some nasty people. Have any of you had food poisoning and know how weak it makes you feel? Michael Jordan led his team, although absolutely wasted, to a victory that night. Now, that's professionalism. Now, Michael's got lots of gifts in lots of ways, but the professionalism I want to highlight is that he showed up even when it hurt. Now, maybe this is a stretch, but I think that David is the Michael Jordan of worship, okay? Because he brings a level of professionalism no matter what's going on in his life. He shows up and does the right thing at the right time. And what he does is he brings the right emotions to the right situations. He's got a sense of propriety. When he's supposed to rejoice, what does he do? He rejoices. When he's supposed to mourn, what does he do? He mourns. When he's supposed to be upset about injustice, what does he do? He gets enraged about injustice. He brings the right feelings and the right emotions to the right situations. Let me point you to one passage. This is Psalm 35, verses 11 through 16. Kind of a standard psalm of cry out for justice. David wants rescue from his enemies. And then he says, Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask of me things I do not know. They repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. I went about as though it were my friend or brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered themselves together. The smiters whom I did not know gathered together against me. They slandered me without ceasing. Like godless gestures at a feast, they gnashed at me with their teeth. That's a standard psalm, but how is David's emotions in it? David has every reason to be angry and frustrated with the people who are chasing him. But what does he do instead? He puts on mourning clothes and prays for them. He feels the remorse that he probably doesn't feel at all. And this is partly what I mean by professionalism. So David's prayer is illustrating something crucial for us that I want to, what I'm calling this, and that's this. In worship, in our worship, duty governs our emotions. Duty governs our emotions. Now, I'm not suggesting that we ignore emotions in worship. That's not what I mean. I'm not suggesting we pretend things are the way they're not for us. I am suggesting that a key component of corporate worship is permitting our duty to God to govern how we approach Him emotionally and not the other way around. I'm going to explain this for a few minutes. Remember David in the cave with Saul. His sense of duty to the Lord trumps his sense of personal vengeance. He always lays his personal emotions to the side for the sake of what's right and what's wrong. And what this does for us is ensures that our worship is about God and not about our personal states. And I'm afraid for many of us, worship is governed by emotional states. We sing joyful songs when we feel joyful, happen to feel joyful. Or we sing grateful songs when we happen to feel grateful. Or we feel sad thoughts and we happen to be feeling mournful. Or we pray for justice when we happen to be experiencing some wrong, but not at other times. And so our expressions of worship to God are contingent upon our circumstances rather than God governing these things. But here's the crux. If you wait to feel grateful to express gratitude, you will never be a grateful person. If you wait to feel love, to express love toward your spouse, your friends, or your children, you will never be a loving person. If you wait to feel remorse, to repent of the things done in your life until you just feel sad about it, you will never be a holy person. And if you wait to feel uh, a sense of injustice, to pray and seek justice for other people, you'll never be a just person. You'll just be someone petty, throwing your own injustices up at God. 
And so we have to summon the right emotions for the right moments. And I am afraid that a lot of our worship is governed by our emotional states rather than being focused on the God who calls us to certain states. The point of all this is simple, I think. David models a professionalism in worship that's not marked not only by showing up with the right heart, but by marshalling his emotions to fit the occasion, even when he's feeling out of sorts. Maybe a homely image can help to cement this. No matter how David feels, when there's a wedding, he shows up wearing wedding clothes. I'm here to celebrate. Doesn't matter how I feel, I'm here for the right occasion. And if someone's dying, he's going to visit the dying, he doesn't show up in a clown outfit. He wears the right clothes for the right occasion. And I think God is inviting us to show up and bring the right states for the right moments in these different ways. It's an important lesson for us, I think, in professionalism. Now, characteristic four is the shortest of these. We'll talk about it briefly. But it's simple. It's artistry. David models artistry for us. It's wonderfully straightforward, but it's worth making explicit. 1 Samuel 16, David plays the harp, right? He's jamming on the harp. He's a musician. Good for him. 2 Samuel 22, he's writing songs for the Lord. He's singing songs for the Lord. So there's actual songwriting, not just musicianship, but songwriting. I've told you already, David's responsible for 73 of the Psalms. He's a poet. He's writing poetry for God. Okay, so there's the artistry of the written word. 2 Samuel 6, he dances before the Lord, leaping. Twelve lords are leaping, right? He's, he's doing his part to dance for the Lord. And then in 1 Chronicles 28, he designs a temple for the Lord. He's an architect in some ways as well. So we've got musicianship, songwriting, poetry writing, dancing, and architecture, all evidenced in David's life. And all these things are done with abandonment. They're done for the Lord. And they're done with representation, a sense of the one of the many, and done with a professionalism done with the right intentions and the right motives in mind for other people. And there's two simple points I want to leave us with this morning. The first is this. There's a wonderful variety in our means of worship. There's wonderful variety. We don't have to get stuck in one way of worshiping. We've got such a wonderful array of songs and uh, musicians and musicianship and poetry and written words and spaces and things of beauty that can draw our attention to God. We get to do it in so many ways. And David led the way. Thanks, David, for showing us that it's okay to be an artist and love Jesus. It's good. Worship should never be stale. One of the verses I love is that the, the I'm going to misquote it, but the, Jesus talks about the guy who brings out of his treasure house treasures both old and new. We get to tap into old things and new things in worship, old songs and new songs to lift the floor, because there's always new things. There's always variety in this. And the second point has to do with what we do together on a Sunday morning or at a worship event we hold, and that's this. A worship team facilitates your abandonment by means of artistry, representation, and professionalism. Now, I think that's some, it may be complex, but I don't think it actually is. What's happening on a Sunday is that our worshipers are facilitating your ability to focus only on God, making it easy for you to fix your attention on him and him alone, and they do it by means of artistry, the vast gifts available to us, a sense of representation where the worshipers represent you and stand for you and lead you in it, and a sense of professionalism where they bring the right states to the right time with a sense of propriety. And your job is to focus on the Lord, 